Is it alright if I sit? Is that okay? Yeah? yeah? Alright, great, fine. Relax. It's relaxed and not here. Perfect. Um, thanks so much everyone for having me. Very much appreciated. Uh, great to be in Nottingham. What I want to do was start off by telling you a bit about my background, how I got to doing a Jewish channel, uh, what it is that inspires me, maybe some of the challenges and uh, plans I have for JTV, and then just also talk about Judaism more generally and why I'm passionate about Judaism, why I believe in the basic tenets of Jewish belief, um, and then just throw it out to you guys, basically. Sound like a plan? Yeah? Cool. Um, so a bit about me, first of all. I grew up in uh, North London, uh, as I suspect some of you in this room did, or a lot of you in this room did. Um, I uh, grew up in like a traditional Jewish home. Um, my mum grew up uh, really not knowing much at all about Judaism and, and only found out that her parents wanted her to marry someone Jewish when she was sort of 16 and already started dating. So my mum made sure from a very young age that she taught me and my brother, like from the age of like three or four, she sat us down and was like, make sure you marry someone Jewish. Like she would sit us down and say the whole time. She tells me that apparently she would sit me down with my older brother and be like, so Matthew, when you find a girl to marry, you have to make sure that she is, and he'd be like, Jewish. And supposedly, uh, I said, she said, Ollie, so when you find a girl, you have to make sure that she is, and apparently I said in a very high-pitched, squeaky voice, pretty. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'm hoping I can get both. Um, so that was uh, the first, I remember from a very early age, I was very, very like, my Jewish identity was really kind of emphasized for my parents. And I remember when I was sort of maybe six, seven, I started to become aware that not everyone is Jewish in the world. And that was like a big like, what? That was like, I had no idea, it was so crazy to me. And apparently I would literally go up to people and say to them, excuse me, are you kosher or Christian? <laughs> just, and my mum didn't stop me because I think she just liked the fact that I was uh, becoming aware of my Jewish identity. But uh, um, so that was like sort of, I was very aware of being Jewish from a very young age. And as I say, grew up in a <coughs> traditional home. But I never really, I didn't go to a Jewish school past sort of kindergarten. Um, and I didn't really give much thought to my, to like the real sort of, core Jewish beliefs sort of once I ent entered sort of you know teenage years um, having said that I had a bar mitzvah teacher who I found to be really really inspiring because what he did was we didn't we didn't just learn I think it's crazy that bar mitzvah boys and girls will learn like well especially boys will learn to read like so much of something in a language which they have no clue what, they, what it means and yet they actually have no, you could, I think it would be much better to spend a year, let them just say the blessings in the Torah, and instead spend a year teaching them about what Judaism is about, you know, and end, also they end up forgetting how to read the Parsha within literally hours of the, you know, the, the, the uh, service being over. So I think we need to rethink that. Um, but he did uh, really inspire me because we didn't just learn the Parsha that I was going to be uh, laning. Uh, we also spoke about the weekly Parsha and like ideas within the weekly Parsha and I remember it really sort of resonated with me and the ideas and the concepts I found like wow Judaism has some like really powerful uh, you know wisdom for for my life and for the modern world and so that really kind of kicked off a bit of a journey in me and I actually asked if I could continue learning with my bar mitzvah teacher and I continued learning with him throughout all my teen years pretty much till I, well till I turned sort of maybe 17 years old because I enjoyed it so much but we never did more than sort of just you know learning a bit about Jewish history some uh, stuff relating to the weekly uh, Parsha then when I got to age sort of 16 17 I started to think about the bigger <coughs> questions is there a God uh, is the Torah how can, is the Torah divinely authored um, is this something that really should matter to me in my life 
you know, it's quite a big commitment actually. Even just wanting to marry someone Jewish, you're literally cutting off like 99% of the world's population. Um, and other things as well. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of laws that it, that it sort of dictates, and it's sort of like. I need to understand whether this is really something that's important to me. I don't think, I guess culture's nice if it's cultural and you're sort of ca carrying on tradition. I think that is important to an extent. But is it enough to sort of dictate your whole life and dictate the decisions you make in life? So I started reading more, sort of learning more, coming across books that dealt with Jewish philosophy. I became convinced once sort of age 17 years old that there is a God, that there's sufficient evidence to say that the Torah is written by the author that it claims to have God, um, that uh, made sense of issues like can there be suffering in the world if there's a God, God and science, um, you know, other sort of big issues like that. If, if God has no needs whatsoever, why would he create the world? Why would he make demands on human beings? What does he get? From, why, he, has, he doesn't need anything. Why, would he, why do we call God a he? You know, all these kind of questions. Um, and I started to look into it more and I became more and more compelled by the Jewish uh, story, the Jewish message, not just also the, the philosophical questions, but also the incredible story that is Jewish history. The fact that Jews have spent most of our history throughout the last 2,000 years um, scattered throughout the world, few in number, um, despite the fact that our laws say we have to have as many children as possible, um, and, also, and also despite the fact that we were the same in population as the Chinese 2,000 years ago, and yet today the Chinese number about 1.3 billion, whereas the Jew, it's, about, it's actually that give or take 13 million. 13 million is the population of the Jewish people worldwide. So the Jews are a statistical error when trying to count how many Chinese people there are in the world. That's how small we are. Um, in fact, there were uh, that t uh, one third of, of world Jewry was wiped out during the Holocaust, so we haven't even met that target. There are less Jews today than there were before the Holocaust, which is crazy to think. Now we can explain, by the way, the fact that we've had, that we've had been few in number so much because of the fact that we've had so much consistent persecution. But it is a remarkable thing that we've been few in number and despite being scattered throughout the world, unlike every, I can't think of any other nation that, hasn't been, that, that, that has been scattered throughout the world rather than being, having the same common land, language and culture. We haven't had those three things. We've been all over the place. Um, and yet we've not, and the other thing is we've also had persistent and consistent uh, persecution throughout our history. I can't think of any other people who have experienced a more intense form of hatred throughout their history. I think anti-Semitism is unique for four key reasons. Number one, it's universal. Wherever Jews seem to go or not go, it happens. Where uh, the fact that it's so intense, there's a whole library of words used to describe incidents and how, how anti-Semitism manifests, pogrom, boycott, ghetto, holocaust, you know, etc., etc. It's irrationality, the fact that unlike other hatreds and persecutions, Jews have been hated for being capitalists, for being communists, because they are parasites on our state, because they created their own nation state. Jews get out of Palestine, Jews get back to Palestine, Jews created Jesus, Jews uh, killed Jesus, you know. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's almost, I think it's almost a divine, well, no, it is, I think it is divine. I think it's supernatural. I don't think you can explain it other way, any other way. And also it's longevity. The fact that for as long as Jews, literally, when the Jewish people, the first time the Jewish people are called a nation in the Torah, the very next sentence, they're called an um, the very next sentence, um, Pharaoh says we've got to wipe them out. It's almost as if there's something inherent in the Jewish people's existence that they need, that there's always going to be a force against them trying to destroy them because they have such a sacred mission is the reason I think that's what anti-Semitism ultimately comes down to. But the fact that you have those three things scattered all over the world, few in number, intensely persecuted, and yet we're still here. It's unbelievable. It's a remarkable thing. 
the fact that the Jewish people are still around. Even if we didn't have the being scattered, the persecution, the few in number, all that kind of stuff. I mean, the Jebusites aren't around anymore. The Canaanites aren't around anymore. And yet the Jewish people who are around at the same time are still here. And it's not just like, you know, the, the ancient Greek empire is gone, but you still have Greeks here. They, there's nothing of ancient Greece that sort of remains in terms of their, their culture, their laws, all that kind of stuff. Whereas when it comes to the Jewish people, Judaism, the, thing, the culture, the laws, the Torah that we're practicing today, you would recognize 2,000 years ago. So that, I think, is remarkable, incredible. And then on top of that is the fact that the Jewish people have um, inspired so much of the world. The fact that the majority of the world believes in the God of Abraham today. That is unbelievable. The fact that the Jewish people, this tiny people, who, the fact that Abraham, forget the Jewish people for a second, the first Jew, Abraham, who had no military might, no political power, didn't have outstanding wealth, he was a wealthy guy, but you know, couldn't like command all the world with his wealth. Um, the whole world laughed at him. He was called the Hebrew. Hebrew means separate, because it was as if he was on, he believed in this concept of one God that you can have a relationship with, and the whole rest of the world laughed at him, believed in idols, or didn't believe you could relate to God, whatever. And he said, no, there is one God. You can relate to him. He wants a relationship with everyone. everyone. Every human being is accountable. And he was laughed at, and yet the Torah was convinced 3,000 years ago that all the families of the earth would bless themselves through Abraham. That's the language of Genesis. And today, the majority of the world believes in this God of Abraham through the monotheistic offshoots of Christianity and Islam. And they would all recognize, you say to a Muslim or to a Christian, do you believe in the God of Abraham? Yes, absolutely. That's a remarkable thing. And there's also so many values that come from that. Western civilization is based on these Judeo-Christian values. The founding of America, which has been an incredible bastion of democracy and liberty, which saved Europe from tyranny of Nazi Germany, was found, the founders of America were obsessed with the Hebrew Bible and with the, the, the concept of our rights and our liberties coming from God, not coming from man, because if they come from man, man can take them away. I actually did my dissertation at uni, on, at UCL, on how the... The, the Old Testament inspired the founders of America. But there's so much more to say about that. So many of the values that we take for granted, peace as an ideal, family values, education as a human right, uh, human, human uh, life as, an, as, as, as sacred, um, uh, uh, social responsibility for the poor and the needy. These were first, they were not articulated by ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which, we, which are part of what Western civilization is based on. They were first articulated by the Bible, by the Hebrew Bible. So, it's not just the fact that the Jewish people have survived, despite all the challenges they felt, but also the fact that they've been, they've, they've had this remarkable, we have had this remarkable impact on human history, on, on the world's value system. Um, that's what really, sort of going back to my own story, that's what really sort of made me like, wow, this is an incredible people to be associated with during my teen years, started to become more aware of, like, wow, this is, this is extremely compelling. This is an amazing people to be a part of. This is a miraculous people to be a part of. But the real clincher for me was the fact that it's not just that all these things have happened, but also the fact that it's all clearly, these things are all clearly foretold in the Hebrew Bible. It says you're going to be scattered all over the world. I will scatter you among the nations. You'll be few in number where I lead you there. You will be, it says that you will be intensely persecuted. You know, your, your, your paranoia will fill your every day. Um, but it also is the Torah is convinced that the Jewish people will not only survive, that the descendants of Jacob will not cease to exist, as it says in Malachi, but also that the Jewish people will be a light unto the nations. Um, and all these things have happened. So it's just, they're so unpredictable, they're so unprecedented. But the fact that it's all these things have happened and were written thousands of years ago, to me, I think it's 
the most plausible argument is that this is written by a being not bound by time, aka a god. So that for me was a big mind shift, which sort of shaped my my sort of foundations in commitment to uh, to Jewish practice and to, to Judaism. Um, and then I went on, but it wasn't enough to really make me transform my whole life. I sort of I, what really what really sort of got me going was a trip to Poland uh, when I was in my last year of school. Um, and I have a very strong memory of sort of going into this tunnel, uh, which had so, uh, papers on either side of the tunnel, and it had lists of names of Jews uh, that, the, that the Nazis had, that they sent, where, it was the names of the people they were sending off on the train tracks to, to the camps. And it had red lines written, sort of uh, marked through them once they had sent them off. And I just remember walking through that, and then at the end of the tunnel, all, I was at the back of the, t back of the line, and all the sort of Jews my age sort of got in a circle and started singing. And it was just that, that moment was like, it was like a specific moment uh, where I just kind of saw like the majesty of Jewish survival, seeing all these names crossed off and yet a living, breathing Jewish people. Um, and I really, it was, it was probably one of the most sort of spiritual moments I've ever had. Um, and I just really felt at that moment like I have to take this seriously now. Um, I have to take my sort of responsibility to, this, to my people, to the Jewish people seriously. And so I decided, after, literally at that moment, I'm going to yeshiva. I'm going to study in, uh, in, in Israel. Didn't really know what yeshiva was. I didn't, never really opened the page of Gemara Talmud before. But I was like, I've got to do this. I've got to become more connected to my Jewish identity. I've got to understand what the Torah asks of me as a Jew. Um, and also, like, I became more interested in the fact that Jews believe history is a process, a process of where the Jewish people... Uh, inspire the world to, to bring them back to a relationship with God, back to the Garden of Eden, which was the beginning, beginning of history, uh, which is the Messianic era. And the remarkable fact that we're not actually at the end of that story, and we as Jews still have a role to play in, in ending that story and, and, and bring it to its culmination. So that was an incredibly like, inspiring, exciting thing to, to, to realize that I can be a part of. And so I decided to go to Yeshiva. Now, when I decided to go to Yeshiva, obviously my friends and family were a little bit concerned because they thought, um, oh my gosh, uh, you are just going to get brainwashed, you won't come back, all those kind of things. I actually, a few weeks into my um, uh, time in Yeshiva, I came back to London for my sister's bat mitzvah. And in the speech, I said, now I know you're all concerned, you're all worried that I'm going to come back, I'm, I'm studying in Israel and I'm going to come back a rabbi. Well, I have to tell you, you have nothing to worry about. I'm not coming back. Um, and, then, and I said, if I had a, honestly, if I had a pound for every time someone told me how worried they were about me becoming all like religious and brainwashed, then um, I'd buy myself a really nice black hat. Um, but uh, uh, they didn't go down so well, actually. But uh, no, anyway, I'm kidding. Um, so after that, I spent a year in yeshiva and then came back to London, went to UCL to read history. Um, and I basically decided that Jewish education needs a bit of a rethink, or, a light, or at least it's not enough just to, you know, we, what, rather we need to start engaging people on social media. Uh, I started giving like talks to groups of people in people's houses and like teens, including one person sitting over here. But I thought we need to do something a little bit bigger than that. And, and young people my age, who I want to, I also want to feel the inspiration that I feel of my Jewish identity, um, they don't necessarily have the opportunities or know about Jewish education opportunities or all that kind of stuff. But many people, or most people, have these things, you know, and they're like, most of us are consuming a lot, if not all of our information uh, through social media and online. So I thought, well, why don't we create some kind of Jewish outlet that can reach young Jewish people around the world and use it as a way to inspire them and educate them? I thought, probably best not to call it... Um, 
like Jewish education, whatever, TV or whatever, because that sounds too, you know, bland. Who, who wants to do that? I thought, you know, let's make it broader than just Jewish education. Why don't we just make it a general media channel that offers all kinds of things? So it was in my, I kind of had the idea in my second year of uni and then it came into fruition in my last year of uni, um, where we basically said, okay, let's create this thing called JTV. And we can have on it different segments. It will be on, online, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all the various outlets, free, completely free, set up as a charity. So, you know, we rely on donations uh, to work. We don't want to make any premium, th premium thing or anything like that. I don't want to give anyone a reason not to go to it or not to be able to watch it. Um, and we set up JTV and basically we created this broad, broad platform which had on it, yes, Jewish education. So that segment's like called Jewish wisdom, but also we did current affairs, like what's happening in Israel and anti-Semitism and big issues that are concerned to Jewish people and also like entertainment and funny content and we also did live events uh, so like we did a debate on uh, God's existence uh, between AC Grayling who's like a very big atheist and uh, Rabbi Daniel Rowe from HUK uh, we did a, de a live debate on sex before marriage and like the Jewish view on that we had like a sort of an arch radical feminist saying yeah you know free love and then like a, a religious uh, Jewish scholar um, who said actually no it's probably best to save that for marriage um, but we cover a whole range of like Jewish topics um, and thank God you know it's been just over four years now, um, and it's been you know it's been gro a growing channel. Uh, we have an audience in predominantly America, then the UK, then Israel, Canada, South Africa, Australia, uh, in that order. Um, I'm very ha happy to say that our biggest audience is aged 16 to 35, which is exactly who I'm targeting at. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much where we're up to. We're always innovating. This we, we're filming this so we can put it on. Uh, on JTV um, because I just thought I do so many of these talks we might as well you know easy content we might as well put it up um, and so yeah that's basically it so I think that's probably enough for me I basically would like to throw the the, the, the questions out to, to, to you you can talk uh, you can ask me about JTV or the thing I'm more passionate about is talking about Judaism and like specific aspects of Judaism or challenging you know me or asking things on different like fundamental Jewish questions or beliefs, things that have bothered you. So really just going to throw it out to you and let's see what happens. Awkward silence. <laughs> yes, but we have to, you, there's a roaming microphone, so we're going to have to, you have to grab the microphone. Nice, you got it. Doesn't look like a microphone, does it? <laughs> it's cute. Um, so thank you very much um, for coming to speak. Um, your story was very uh, interesting um what's a particular highlight or funny moment of um your time working on on jtv or for jtv oh um i'll tell you what was a really interesting moment um we just just when we actually started launching in in sort of february 2016 this is when the whole sort of labor party anti-semitism thing started to uh, manifest something that we've been completely saturated now we just don't want to talk about it anymore but this, this was just sort of starting to begin at this stage because you had jeremy corbyn become leader of the labor party and he i mean he himself i personally believe is anti-semitic or at least he act, he's act, said and done things which are anti-semitic such as uh, say that Hamas is working for peace and social justice, that is an anti-Semitic thing to say, you're endorsing a genocidal uh, organisation. Um, the fact that he said, he complained that the BBC has a bias against saying Israel has a right to exist, uh, the fact that he, the whole thing with the mural. Um, but what was interesting is that um, it was just after the Ken Livingstone made those comments about, you know, Hitler was a Zionist, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, 
Jeremy Corbyn got Shami Chakrabarti, who was a, a human rights lawyer, he said, will you please make a report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? Obviously, his intention was, just, let's just make a report and we can sort of get the, just put the whole thing under the carpet. So she did this report. Um, I think it sort of came out very quickly after she was commissioned to do it. Um, and what was very weird was that she actually joined the Labour Party just as she started to do the report, which I found very strange. She said, this is so I can be objective. I'm like, how does that make you objective? That makes you subjective, surely. But that's what she said. And so she produced this report into anti-Semitism. And the, the report began, the first words were, the Labour Party is not overrun with anti-Semitism. That was the first words of the report, which is obviously the, the, the first thing people will focus on when they read it. And obviously implies, you know, She's just she's trying to downplay the issues, trying to whitewash the issue, and already some sort of Jewish bodies and organisations, Jewish heads, were saying this is a, this is a whitewash, whatever. And she didn't actually reference any witness statements in her report. But what I did was we managed to get invite her on to JTV. It was a relatively new organisation. She didn't really know much about it, so we said we'd like to give you a chance to tell us about your report, you know. Um, and so we, my, the interviewer we had was a guy called Alan Mendoza, who's sort of very uh, uh, precise and very, um, you know, he 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 was on top of his facts. And I don't know whether he got some inside information or something like that, but he asked her during the interview. Um, I wasn't so sure how it was going. It was going okay, like we sort of got her on a few points, but he asked her during the interview, about halfway through, um, do you have any political ambitions? And she sort of started to get a little bit uncomfortable. And he said, well, have you been offered anything, uh, you know, in return for this? And, you know, maybe a seat in the House of Lords? And she sort of just grabbed her water and looked very uncomfortable. And she just said, um, I'm going to evade that question, right? So, I, and I looked at my friend when we, when we were behind the camera and we were just like, <laughs> because like what it implied was she was offered a seat in the House of Lords in order to do a whitewash report, right? And so I thought, this is a good story, this is quite fun. Anyway, we released the video. Someone said, Ollie, turn on the TV the next day. I turned on Sky News and they were blasting our con the JTV content onto uh, on Sky News live. It was amazing. And like everyone was ch challenging Shami Chakrabarti, is this a you know, whitewash for peerages scandal. And the chief rabbi and everyone started going, this is a complete disgrace. And um, it was a real expose, actually. It was quite, quite remarkable. So I'd say probably that was one of my sort of highlights from, uh, from doing JTV, yeah. Who's next? Anything, can be JTV, can be any Jewish question that's bothered you, anything. Can't promise I'll be able to answer it, but can try, yes. Uh, thanks again for coming. Um, not meant in a rude way in any way, shape or form. Just uh, something, that, uh, something I personally struggled with was remaining objective and not <coughs> and removing um, information from past experience when considering an issue. Uh, so working in the media and obviously your connection to Judaism, how do you work or how, what measures do you take to maintain your objectivity? With, re you talk, with regard to what specifically? Well, regards, well, it's quite open. So potentially, so politically, Judaically, so not using your uh, links to Judaism or your Jewish beliefs as, the, as a mandate for a belief, but rather other ideas, necessarily, if that's something you do. Look, I, the first thing I would say is I try to, I, I personally consider myself like 
a skeptic in a sense, which is strange as someone who like believes in God. Um, like I, like certainly like when people like try to suggest like conspiracy theories, I'm always like the first to be like this ridiculous. Like don't go down that route. I, I try to. I never. A lot. Some people like come to religion and all these things through like emotion or like they had a nice experience at a Shabbat table or like something happened to them in their life. For me, it was a lot. A lot more like I sort of came to religion through like rational thoughts. The question is, you're saying once you're sort of down that path, how do you remain rational? I, I would, I would say I, I um, not rational, objective. Objective, yeah. Okay, fine. Objective. Um, I personally think I, I, I look. I personally consider myself t just trying to be as objective I, as I can. However, JTV does not brand itself as being an objective channel. We are, we are subjective. We are partisan. We're pro. We have certain. I mean, we'll invite people on to debate all kinds of things, but we are pro-Israel. We don't go into like settlements, not settlements, BB Gantz, all that kind of stuff. But we're pro-Israel. We are. Um, uh, you know, I do believe in certain Jewish beliefs and principles, and I will sort of teach them and espouse them. So, in a sense, we're openly subjective in that sense. Um, but I try to be as open and, and reasonable as I, as I can. I think the danger comes in media where people present themselves as being objective, where in fact they're not; they're partisan. But we are openly partisan. We openly have certain things we're trying to push. Charlie, my former student. Um, what is your like view on evolution, and would you say it has a part to play in Judaism? Good question. Good question. So I, I first of all have to confess that I'm not I, I'm not like the the, be the top best scientist <laughs> out there. You know, I study history at uni, but I do try to understand these questions because every every thinking person, everything in Jewish person, everything in Jewish believing person should ask these questions when it comes to um, evolution. Um, it really comes into a bigger question in general about God and, and science and, you know, how, how does that all work and what the Torah says about the, the nature of the creation of the world and how, how does that fit into what we know about the, the age of the universe, how humanity came to be, all that kind of stuff. We have a detailed video of this on JTV. There you go. So you can watch that. Uh, it's called, I think it's called um, something like, if you just type in God and science, JTV into YouTube, you'll find it. But I'll touch specifically on evolution. Um, there isn't necessarily anything that contradicts between, uh, there's, no, there's no clear ne necessary contradiction between the Jewish accounts of creation and evolution. The first reason being because um, uh, the six days of creation, many commentaries don't see it as literal. One of the obvious exa examples being uh, the fact that the sun was only created on day four. So what, were the first, what was a day we defined by, you know, the sun and, and, and as being, you know, night and day. Um, so, like, what actually were these days? So some commentaries think it was a 24-hour period. Some people say, no, it was much longer than that. So if it was much longer than that, if it was actually millions, billions of years, um, then within those six days, it's perfectly plausible. There's nothing to contradict that, you know, that, that the evolution took place within that process. Um, Having said that, there is actually one part of evolution that still remains the biggest mystery. We can understand, and we've made sense of how you get to humanity from the first living cell, which is that through a process of natural selection, the stronger characteristics survive while the weaker ones die out, and eventually you get to complex beings like us and other, other animals. But the big question that's still unanswered in evolution, and this is what turns a lot of people actually to theology, a lot of scientists to theology, um, including a uh, biological professor at Cambridge, whose name escapes me, I'll remember it by the end of this, the end of this conversation, um, 
is that we don't know how this first cell came into being. And this first cell, which began the process of evolution, the very first living cell, which contained within it DNA. And DNA is, to quote Bill Gates, like a computer system, except far more complicated than anything we've ever created. So the question is, okay, we understand that process of evolution. How did that very first living cell come into being? Um, which is more complex, actually. Getting from inanimate matter to that first living cell is more complex than all the future stages of evolution, the original cell. How is it that you get from dirt, inanimate matter, to that first living cell? They've even there was a, an experiment done, uh, I can't remember who did it, I think it was in, in the 1950s, it's in the video, I can't remember the names of the people that did it, where they tried to see, create, see if they could create circumstances in which they could create some kind of living being from inanimate dead matter, and they couldn't do it. So the question that we're still left with, we sort of talk about evolution as if all, the, all, the, all our questions are answered, and it may well be that science may come to answer that question. But we still have a big question which science doesn't know the answer to and which many people turn to theology for. I'm not saying you have to, but I'm saying there is no answer to this yet, which is how did that very first living cell come into being in the first place? And that's a question that, um, yeah, that is still unanswered. So yeah, that I would say, so in terms of evolution, the process of, of, of evolution, there's no reason to say that it didn't, you know, it, it didn't. One of the other reasons, by the way, why uh, a lot of people don't, a lot of commentaries, Torah commentaries, don't take the six days literally, six days of creation literally, apart from the, the point that I mentioned about the sun being created on day four, is also that, imagine you're like creating a, um, a computer game, right? Uh, and when, you, when you're actually coding the software, that's very different, that's a completely different world to the actual game itself. Like if you're, if, imagine if you were one of the characters in the game, you would have, when you're actually in the, the process of creating, you, they, have, they couldn't even conceive of what that's like, the, the, the creating of the game itself, the coding of it. And the six days of creation are, in a sense, the coding of creation. So when it talks about all these different things, uh, and the, the language that it uses, um, some Torah commentaries say this is actually the one area of the Torah where actually you're meant to take it all, until you get to creation itself, you're meant to take it all metaphorically because this is the coding room. And so actually, when people try to say, ah, oh, we know it's billions of years, I am of the position that it's, it's, more pl it's plausible or likely that this is really talking uh, in metaphors, because the six A's is the coding room of creation. Yeah. Yes, wait for the microphone. Um, how do you decide what you're going to put on JTV and like, does anyone approve the content that you have to put on? I just get out of bed and I'm like, <laughs> you know, hmm, what should we do today? No, uh, there's no, there's no, honestly, there's like no, uh, like, there's, I, firstly, I don't have any, any senior person that tells me like, uh, that approves or dis disapproves. That's the beauty of starting your own thing. You get to be your own boss, which is great. Highly recommended. Um, but in terms of general content, I have, look, I have some like, close friends and we have trustees of the charity. I bounce ideas off. Um, sometimes I'll approach speakers or they'll approach me and they'll say, I really want to talk about this topic or that topic. And we say, great. Um, generally speaking, we have three main segments, Jewish wisdom, current affairs, entertainment. So that's always sort of focusing my mind in terms of, OK, well, what do we need to do to keep that with that theme? Having said that, we've also started doing like um, crash courses now, which is 
that sort of directs me in terms of what the content should be. So we're doing a crash course in Jewish history on JTV. We've just got up to really early stages, the Jewish people entering the land of Israel. Um, we had like a lot of preamble, they each like five minute videos. There's a lot of preamble at the beginning, like talking about like the fundamentals of how Jews understand history. Um, we're doing a crash course in anti-Semitism uh, with an amazing Jewish historian called Trudy Gold. Uh, we're doing a crash course in God, like all the big questions around what is the Jewish concept of God with a guy called Rabbi David Aaron. All of these are like five minute videos. Um, so what, any other, uh, we did a crash course in mental health. Um, so that's like the new thing that kind of, once we decide what a crash course will be, we can kind of know, okay, what top, we know sort of what rough area of topics we're going to go into. Um, but often the great thing as well about doing our own thing and running on a relatively lean budget is that we're open to all kinds of things. Um, and if people, you know, if there's something new that happens in the world or a new area of interest, uh, we're happy to go there, we're happy to do it. Um, and... Yeah, and I've also managed to make contacts with like, people in Israel and America, like people that also make their own videos and personalities, and some people that want to collaborate with us. Um, so, yeah, there's, like, there's, always, there's always like a stream of content that I'm thinking of putting out, and like, there's all, we always have, like, have a backlog that we're ready to release, but always up for doing, for doing new things and finding new ideas, yeah. How would you distinguish the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? I wouldn't. Next. <laughs> um, so, it's a good question. Um, again, we also have a video on this on JTV, so you can watch that. It's called... Uh, I think it's called Why Anti-Zionism is Anti-Semitism with a guy called Elon Levy, uh, who's an, I think he's an I-24 news presenter. I hope I get that right, but I think he is. Um, and I think, basically, it gets a little bit confusing when you deal with Jewish anti-Zionists, especially religious Jewish anti-Zionists. But let's just speak broadly first, and then I'll deal with, I'll deal with the religious Jewish anti-Zionists. The reason why I think anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is because if you believe that all peoples have a right to self-determination in a homeland, except for the Jews, hence the name anti-Zionist. Zionism means belief in the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in their ancient homeland. Then you have a clear double standard against the Jewish people. That is persecution against the Jews, right? Um, the exception I'd make is if you don't believe that any state has the right to exist, that no people have the right to their own self-determination. Um, then I think that's, you know, a problem. And then the other, the, the other issue is people say, well, maybe you Jews have a right to a state, but they can't steal land, you know, from... But then you need to get into a little bit more detail of the history, and you understand... And it's very, very clear that while it, it's perfectly legitimate to say that the, the Arabs have a legitimate claim to, uh, to the land, it's equally, or if not more legitimate, to say that the Jewish people have a claim to the land, given their history, given the fact they've always had a presence there, given the fact that there's the last nation state in Israel was a Jewish one. There's never, every, since that point, it's always just been other empires and um, other countries taking control of the land. Um, and the fact that the Jews have always been prepared to, to divide the land and split the land. And, and the only time really you had conquering of, 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 of Arab territory was when Jews were engaged in a defensive war. Um, so that, again, is why I think it's, you know, to say the Jews stole the land, it's, it's illegitimate. Um, it's, it's just being blind to history. 
um, also taking into fact all the suffering and the anti-Semitism they've experienced. You know, th these people have a right to live somewhere. They need to have a right to exist. They need to have some level of self-determination. But the principal point is, if everyone has a right to self-determination, but the Jews don't, that's a double standard. That's anti-Semitic. Now, what happens when you have Jewish people who are anti-Zionist? Let's deal with first secular Jews who are anti-Zionist. Well, in that instance, um, if I'm Jewish, I'm secular, and I say Jews, uh, you know, love money, all Jews love money, is that any less anti-Semitic just because I'm a Jew that's saying it? No. It's still, you can be, you know, newsflash, you can be anti-Semitic and Jewish at the same time. Right? We have a lot of people who are like, we call David Hirsch, who's a, a historian that talks about left-wing anti-Semitism, talks about as a Jews, who like say, as a Jew, I think Israel's disgusting. You know, they, the only time they utilize their Jewish identity is to bash Israel. Right? So you can be Jewish and you can be anti-Zionist, which is anti-Semitic. Now, what about religious Jews? Like the Naturi Carter, who, by the way, people say, oh, it's the Haredim, they're all... No, it's a very, very tiny sect of... The, the, the radical religious right um, called the Naturi Carta. Uh, most Haredim are, you know, cooperate, support uh, the existence of the State of Israel, but the Naturi Carta are a very small sect who say, no, we um, uh, as, uh, as Jews should not support uh, the existence of the State of Israel. Um, I would still say that what they're doing is a form of anti-Semitism, because you're, again, you're, not, you're, you're, you're holding the Jewish people to, you're, to, you're, to a different stand to everyone else. You're saying they don't have the right to, to the land of Israel. But it's important in that sense to understand they have a very specific intention and motivation, which is that they believe they're religiously um, authorized to do this because uh, they believe that the Torah or the Talmud says that you have, the Jews have no right to create a state of Israel until the Moshiach comes. So I would say in that instance, first of all, consider the harm they're doing. I mean, eh, yeah, they are doing some harm. We should, we should try and fight back against what they're doing. Um, but, you know, what they're doing is uh, inspired by how they view uh, religion. They're not inspired, let's say, by, you know, let's say radical Islamic extremism, which also calls for Jews to be killed worldwide. So, you know, a little bit less concerns about the Naturi Carta in comparison. Um, but yes, I would still say at the end of the day, they just believe they, what their, their position is a form of prejudice against Jews. They just, it's just religiously inspired for, for, from their perspective. And so it's a little bit more nuanced in, in their instance. Um, but generally speaking, if you come across someone who says the Jews stole the land, they have no right to exist, at best they're ignorant, and at worst they're engaging in a form of uh, anti-Semitism. But always best to educate when you can, because most people, it's just just tends to be just lack of uh, awareness. At the back, just wait for the microphone. Yes, um, many progressive rabbis and scholars would say that uh, Reform Judaism, Progressive Judaism, is just as equal to Orthodox Judaism. Do you agree with what they have to say? Define equal. Um, normal, normal per se. As normal. Define normal. Well. The, 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 the many, many Orthodox scholars would say that Orthodox Judaism is the status quo, and progressive scholars would argue that they're not being treated equally against, they're being discriminated against. So do you agree um, with the Orthodox argument or the progressive argument? Um, I'm Orthodox, I'm an Orthodox Jew myself. Um, I believe we should treat and love all Jews equally, um, but I don't treat all forms of Judaism equally. Um, 
So absolutely, as a community, regardless of whether you're progressive or orthodox, we should all look out for each other. We all have a duty to care for each other. We're all are part of Am Yisrael, um, and we have to look out for each other, and we should stand together when it comes to dealing with issues like anti-Semitism or Jewish security or standing up for Israel, all that kind of stuff, 100%. Um, when it comes to the issue of belief, that they have, Reformed Jews have certain beliefs, and Orthodox Jews have certain beliefs. I subscribe to the Orthodox uh, beliefs about Judaism, and I think the Reform uh, Judaism, I don't, I don't subscribe to it. You also should recognise, by the way, that the Reform Judaism, as a matter of fact, is only a couple of hundred years old, whereas Orthodox Judaism is, I think, I would hope most people would accept that it's a form of basically keeping halakha Jewish law, and it's existed ever since the Jewish people were first conceived. So, so progressive Judaism is a relatively new form of Judaism. It was founded by people whose essential aim was to um, assimilate into their respective co uh, country or culture. I wouldn't say, by the way, that that is what uh, uh, is the motivation behind reform or progressive Jews today, but that was how it was uh, originally uh, founded. Um, but the basic difference between Orthodox Judaism and Reform Judaism is that uh, Reform Judaism doesn't believe that Jews necessarily need to be bound by halacha, by Jewish law, as has been practiced for thousands of years, uh, whereas Orthodox Judaism does. Um, there's differences of opinion within the Reform camp in terms of whether the Torah is written by God, uh, wh whether um, you know, uh, the Jewish people um, uh, are still bound by the laws of you know, the Talmud and our rabbis and our sages, but Orthodox Jews are absolutely clear that, that we are, and that's the tradition that's been uh, passed down for, for centuries. And I'm just ver very clear that that's, you know, what I believe, and I think it's, I've concluded sort of, you know, through my own reasoning and studying that that's, that's what I believe in. So I think that um, uh, I believe in and I practice and I encourage people to uh, observe the tenets of Orthodox Judaism, um, but in terms of respecting and loving other Jews, I couldn't care less whether you're Orthodox Reform or whatever. Uh, hi again. Um, to what extent do you think faith comes into believing God in comparison to logic? Great question, amazing question. Again, we have a video on this on JTV. Um, so I think the video is called, we have a, a playlist called Jewish Philosophy and one of the videos is what, it, what, is, what is faith? Or something like that, if faith is knowledge, what, knowledge versus faith, something like that. Um, great question. I've just told you that I think it's rational to believe in God, that it's rational to believe that God wrote the Torah um, and that Judaism is rational, but then what do we mean? What does faith mean? What does it mean to have faith in God? Doesn't faith mean I don't have enough knowledge, I don't have enough evidence, therefore I'm just gonna believe, you gotta believe, you know? Like, I'm gonna have a leap of faith. Isn't that what leap of faith means, or blind faith? Like, I can't see everything, but I'm gonna go for it, you know? Um, and we have a word for faith in Hebrew, which is, anyone? You'll kick yourself when I tell you. Em emunah, there you go, emunah. So what does it mean to have faith? Like, what, what does Judaism demand of us? Does it demand of us to suspend our intellectual uh, faculties and just believe in God? <coughs> I personally think that's stupid. Like, I might as well believe in the tooth fairy. Like, if there's not enough evidence, I'll just suspend my belief, uh, my, my, inte my intellectual capacities, and I'll just believe in the tooth fairy. Like, that doesn't make, like, 
I'm not going to believe in, I'm not going to commit my life to something if there isn't sufficient evidence behind it. I think that's reasonable. Um, and that's why I'm not going to believe in, 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 the, in the tooth fairy. And so the question then becomes, well, what do we mean by faith? Certainly, by the way, in other uh, religions and other traditions, they all talk a lot about faith, how you need to, there might not be enough evidence behind something, but you've just got to submit to it. Um, I do think there is sufficient evidence uh, to say that it's more plausible of the options that there's a God who's directed history, who is directing Jewish history, who's written the Torah, all that kind of stuff. So then what do we mean by faith? What does emunah mean? Rabbi Tatz explains it beautifully, Rabbi Kiva Tatz. He says it's just a very simple change in the translation. Emunah doesn't mean faith. It means faithfulness. What's the difference? I can know as a matter of fact that smoking is bad for me. As a matter of fact, I know smoking is bad for me. But I can still decide to go ahead and smoke 20 cigarettes a day. I don't smoke, by the way. Um, but I can still decide to do that, especially when I start getting addicted. Right? Then you start to have your impulses, your desires are telling you what to get. You can still know. I can know I've, I want to lose weight. I can know that I must not have that chocolate brownie that my mom's just made. But your impulses, your desires, your emotions, oh, you feel so bad for yourself, you know, you've had such a tough week, what's one brownie going to do, you know? You can know something is true and yet choose to ignore it or choose to lead a life that's different, that's not in keeping with what you know to be true. It's called um, cognitive dissonance. I can know something is true, but don't, don't go ahead and lead, you know, lead a life in accordance with that. The same is exactly true of faith, religion. Faith Emunah means faithfulness. It means being faithful to that which, to that which you know to be true. Um, I can know there's a God. I can know that there's, you know, it's, 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 it's rational to, 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 to believe in these things. But I can choose to ignore that. I can choose not to put on to fill in. I can choose not to, you know, pray. I can choose not to be kind to that person. I can choose to, you know, just quickly, just if the, the waiter forgot to uh, add on that extra thing to my bill, I can choose just to, you know, whatever, ignore him. Because, you know, whatever, or maybe there might be a God, but, you know, well, uh, just I'll deal with it. Or God will, do, you know, he'll forgive me or uh, whatever it is. I'll deal with the consequences later. Emunah in Judaism means being loyal and faithful to that which you've already concluded to be true. Judaism does not demand of us to be irrational, to, 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 to believe in something without being comfortable that this is a plausible position to hold. What it says is once, you know, you're not gonna get, God isn't gonna reveal himself to you in the open and do, you know, talk to you directly. He'll put a lot of things in the world to make it, to, to point you in the right direction. Um, but, your choice then is to decide, am I going to be loyal to that? Am I going to follow through with that? Am I going to lead a life in accordance with that? And just and it's, by the way, that's a challenge every single day. And just because I'm, I've concluded these, you know, I'm, I feel very, very confident from a rational perspective in, in God and the basic principles of Judaism. Does that mean I'm a perfect Jew? Absolutely not. Does that mean I make mistakes? Does that mean that I rationalize doing bad things? Of course it does. Emunah is about, also the other challenge is, does it mean that I like, have faith, that, like have trust in Hashem when like difficult things happen in my life. It's really difficult, um, especially as you don't see God. And you also, we're also inbuilt. Not only do we have like physical drives and emotional stuff and that kind of stuff, we also are told that we have something called a Yetzirah, which is a voice within all of our heads, and which is like called the evil inclination, which actually is trying to make us the best person we can be. But it's doing that by giving us all those skeptical voices and those voices of fear and doubt and worry and all that kind of stuff. So, emunah, faith is 
uh, translated as faithfulness, it's being loyal to that which you know to be true. And just, just uh, as, a, as a side point, um, in, in terms of people say, I would believe in God if he, he revealed himself to us, just as an aside point, we do actually kind of concede that point because God does say, actually, I do need to reveal myself at one point throughout history. And he does at Mount Sinai. Um, now, people say, well, yeah, but how do we know whether that happened? That has, you know, thousands of years ago. Interesting to note that the only religion that's ever made the claim that God revealed himself to a group of people, when I say a group, I mean more than one person, is Judaism, is the claim of the national revelation at Mount Sinai. Isn't that odd? The fact that you'd expect, surely if you can get away with that, such a false claim, surely another religion and other people would try and get away with that claim as well. Something to think about. We did a, a video on that called National Revelation. Type in that to JTV, you'll find it, where I go into that in more detail. But interestingly, the Shema, which is our declaration of faithfulness that we say twice a day, the last letter of the first word and the last letter of the final word of the Shema is an ayin and a dalad, and they're both bigger than the other letters. Because when you put ayin and dalad together, it spells the word witness. Because it's implying that our faith, our, our, our belief, is based on the fact that we were once witness as a nation to God revealing himself. But what it's really saying is that um, you, can, the, you can be witness to, to, to God in the sense of you can see things that point towards God, but still you have to declare this twice, twice a day because of that cognitive dissonance thing. We can still forget, we can still go back into our old routines, we can still get pulled by our environment, by our friends to do this or that. You have to constantly declare the Shema twice a day to remind yourself of this thing. And the reason why we're meant to actually cover our eyes when we do that, when we say the Shema, is because of the very fact that when we look at the you know when you look at the world, um, things don't necessarily all add up. There's suffering in the world. There's challenges in the world. We have challenges in our life. We also have so many things that are pushing us this way, that way. Whether it's friends, whether it's our own motives, our own desires, our own impulses. And the purpose of shutting your eyes is just to say, you know what? I can't. Things don't make uh, complete sense to me. But I'm going to learn to um, hear the voice of God in my life. That's why we say the word Shema Yisrael. We don't say Ro'er Yisrael, see Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We say hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And an interesting point about that, when the Jews were at Mount Sinai, it says, the Torah says that they saw the sounds of, of, the, of, of the blast, of the noise that were coming from the, from the, from the mountain. That's weird, odd language to use, they saw the sounds. What does that mean? You see sounds, sorry, you hear sounds, you don't see sounds. And one explanation given is that the difference between seeing and hearing something is that when you see something, you can take it in all at once. You see a picture, you take it in all at once. When you hear something, when I'm communicating with you, you hear word after word after word, decibel after decibel, and you have to slowly put it all together and build a picture in your head of what I'm, of what I'm telling you. But at Mount Sinai, they had this all-encompassing experience of the infinite, of God, speak to them, that everything, came, everything happened to them at once, basically. It was, they, they, they transcended the finite. They transcended that which of, of hearing things bit by bit. And so it was an all-encompassing experience. But what it's telling us when it comes to the Shema is that we say, hear, O Israel, when we declare our faith, not see Israel. Because hearing, also think about it, it's about hearing, isn't about you see everything immediately and it all makes sense. It's about putting one thing together and another thing together and another together in your mind. Not necessarily things all making sense in front of you, but thinking, taking a step back and thinking about this and that and the other, and then it can all come together. Um, even, if it doesn't, even if you don't see God in front of your eyes, it's more of a slow process of 
putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And that's what um, faithfulness is. That's why uh, we say Shema Israel, hero Israel. One last question? Okay. Yes. Um, so I'm very proud to be Jewish and I'm very to open, open to people that I am Jewish. Why should I wear a kippah? Great question. Um, I'll tell you what, when I started wearing a kippah, that was like probably one of the biggest transitions I made as a Jew. Um, I, don't, I don't say that to um, put you off. I encourage you from wearing a kippah. I think it's an amazing thing. But basically, it means I'm now identifying as a Jew to the world. Right? People don't necessarily know if you're Jewish. They know if I'm Jewish now. Um, and I'm immediately, it's so funny. <laughs> my friend, you know uh, when, you, when you make a good impression on, some, on someone uh, to a non-Jew, it's called a Kiddush Hashem. And if you make a bad impression to them and they, they think, oh, Jews are like that, how terrible. It's called a Chilo Hashem, which means to desecrate God's name. So some of my religious friends, they have what's called a Chilo Hashem cap, which they wear when they drive sometimes, if they're going to drive quite fast somewhere because they don't want people to think badly of Jews, <laughs> um, which is probably quite a bad thing to do. They should probably just drive a bit slower. Having said that, um, it was quite a big thing when I put on, put on my kippah because I'm now, you are now announcing yourself to other people that you're Jewish. Um, you have to decide whether you're prepared, whether you're ready to do that. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll t I mean, at a, at a basic level, if you just want to keep Jewish law, this is part of Jewish law, it's for, for men to co cover their heads. Um, at a basic level, that's what I'd say. But I'd say do it if you're ready to really em em embrace growing in your Jewish, Jewish observance. Um, you're happy for people to know that you're Jewish. Um, but the other thing I would say is that, um, what does it mean to identify as a Jew? What does it mean, what, is it, what, is it, what, what are we trying to do? What, what, what are the Jewish people about? What are, we, what are we trying to achieve? The purpose of the Jewish people throughout history, and I've spoken earlier about how we've done so much of this already, despite having our hands tied behind our backs, um, is to bring the world closer to oneness, to closer to a relationship with God, to give them a sense of meaning and redemption in their lives. I think you can, your life can only be fully redeemed if you have a relationship with God. Because ultimately, we end, life ends in nothingness, you know? Um, and unlike your life has no purpose and meaning. But that's our, that's our message to the world, to bring humanity back towards a relationship with God um, and also to, towards loving one another and ending peace, uh, ending war and jealousy and arrogance and strife and unnecessary hatred and arguments. That's what we're trying to do. And if you're ready to commit to that, then it's the most, I, I, I see it as, 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 as an incredible honor to be able to identify as a Jew um, and be an ambassador for Hashem. That's what we're about. about to be an ambassador for Hashem in the world um, and to hopefully, by identifying as a Jew, bring both other Jews and non-Jews closer to that uh, sort of version of reality that uh, we want them all to do. So I think it's an amazing thing to do. Um, I think it, 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 it sort of takes you from your Judaism from being a private thing to much more of a public thing. Um, but if you buy into the, to the mission and the values of the Jewish people and you, you're ready to, to become an ambassador, um, and remember that they're watching you, people are watching you 24-7, which isn't a bad thing, it's a great thing. It means you have the, the chance to inspire um, and, and give a good name to the Jewish people, which is giving a good name to Hashem, because we are meant to be Hashem's ambassadors in the world. Then if you're ready to do that, then I'd say 100% go for it. Thank you so much for having me.
To stay up to date with JTV content, click subscribe here if you're on YouTube and hit the alarm bell. And if you're on Facebook, hit the like button and under following, click see first. If you enjoy watching JTV content and want to help us continue to grow, please consider making a donation to us by clicking here.